You're listening to Carrie Grover whistling the tune On Yonder Green Mountain, a song she first heard when she was about 10 years old at her home in Nova Scotia. When I was a child, I thought that was just about the prettiest tune Father sang. Welcome to the Carrie Grover podcast series. I'm Julie Mainstone Savas, and I've collected every known song belonging to Carrie Grover and her family, over 240 folk songs and ballads that were either passed down through her family, picked up in the lumber camps of the Northeast, or learned through neighbors and friends living alongside them in their small farming community in Sunken Lake, Nova Scotia, throughout the 17 and 1800s. In this episode, you'll hear these songs from Carrie's collection sung by Lisa Null, Sarah Gray, and myself, with fiddle tunes played by Randy Miller and a poem recited by Marie York, the granddaughter of Carrie's sister. Every song sung or mentioned in this podcast is available for free download on my website, www.carriegroverproject.com. I became inspired to pursue this project when I first stumbled upon Grover's published songbook almost 20 years ago now. Grover herself was intent on preserving her rich musical legacy and the stories of her ancestors so that her grandchildren and great-grandchildren would know the hard-working lives of their people and the role the songs played in helping them through life's ups and downs. In the mid-1950s, when Grover was well into her 70s, she published a songbook of her family's repertoire and entitled it A Heritage of Songs. In spite of her efforts to save generations of her family's music, her cherished songbook never rose out of obscurity. Long out of print and difficult to obtain, the songs themselves were on the brink of extinction. My intent is to ensure safe passage to a digital age through the website www.carriegroverproject.com with the music and the history of one very ordinary musical family who lived in a time of song singing that has faded away, has been preserved. People often ask me if I am related to Carrie Grover. The answer is no, I am not. I simply fell in love with her collection of songs and immediately realized they'd soon be lost if no steps were taken to preserve and pass them on. Every decision I've made has been in service to what is best for the music and to what I believe Carrie and her parents, George and Eliza Spinney, would have wanted. I begin this recording, the fifth in the series, where I left off in Sunken Lake, where Carrie, the youngest of George and Eliza's nine children, is absorbing the music of her environment while holding her own amid the clang and clatter of a busy farming life. Someone was always singing, she wrote. Her father sang as he carved axe handles, mother sang at the spinning wheel and at her knitting, and her sister sang as they carried out household chores and helped care for the younger children. Song was not only a companion to their work, but, as Carrie wrote, The people living in the rural districts of Nova Scotia at that time depended almost entirely on the singing of songs for entertainment. Often neighbors would spend a long evening at the home of another neighbor, and quite frequently the evening would be spent in singing songs. There were no radios or phonographs at the time, and folks sang with no accompaniment whatsoever. The songs of those times weren't any more like the songs that are sung today than black is like white. 
A large share of the old-time songs were made up to commemorate incidents such as murders, tragedies of all kinds and descriptions, shipwrecks, accidents, or incidents in the lumberwoods. In fact, almost anything you could imagine. Often, this was the only way in which the incidents were remembered, and more often than not, the songs were never written down. Children learned them from hearing their parents or grandparents sing them, and in their turn, pass them along to their own children and grandchildren. That is the reason why it is so hard for song collectors of these days to get any trace of many of the old ballads. Many of the oldest and best have just simply faded out of existence, and you never, ever hear a whimper of them these days. My mother's family were all musical as far back as we have any record of them. People of long ago who had to depend entirely on a keen ear and retentive memory could remember both words and tunes to an unbelievable number of songs. Sometimes her parents would walk out to spend the evening at a neighbor's home, and the kids would be left alone to entertain themselves. Part of their play, as Carrie described it, consisted of singing songs in imitation of their elders, and each had a song they had learned and kept for just these occasions. At other times, when left to their own devices, her older sisters, Margaret and Bertha, poked fun at the way the local boys danced. Bertha pretended she was a boy named Charlie, who always danced with his head thrown back and so relaxed that it seemed as though he had double joints all over his body, while Margaret would pretend she was a boy named Jim, who held himself so stiff with his face screwed up in a funny grimace as he tried to keep pace with his partner. And who was I? Carrie wrote. Why, I was a musician, to be sure. I sang or whistled lustily for the others to dance. Even in their play, it was song and dance that came front and center. Carrie wrote it was considered a rare treat if someone from another settlement came in to spend an evening who knew and could sing songs they'd never heard before, and that they even enjoyed hearing the well-known songs because in different communities they were sung with a slightly different twist to the tune. Rules of etiquette presided as well. There were two that stood out. One, each person had his or her own special collection of songs, and as a general rule, no one sang a song rightfully belonging to another. And two, when a guest came to visit, it was considered poor manners not to ask him or her to sing a song before they departed. Their songs came from a variety of sources. One example of how a song was acquired comes through a story of Cousin Bessie Long, who ran into the house of a neighbor to take shelter from the rain around the year 1889. A young man by the name of Davidson was there, and he sang the song, Gently Ginny, Fair Rosemary, and Bessie learned it from him. She shared it with the others, and it too came down the line to be included in the family repertoire and into the pages of A Heritage of Songs. When Carrie's mother was a young girl at Sunken Lake, she learned a song from an old woman who used to sit on her porch and sing. It's entitled, Remember the Poor, recorded by Lisa Null. Cold winter has come with its cold chilling breath. The verdure has fell from the trees. All nature seems touched by the finger of death. The leaves are beginning. Is his cut We 
As a young girl, Carrie was introduced to a host of seasonal chores and tasks that made up the rhythm of women's work. It differed from that of the men and boys, and she wrote in detail the processes required to complete certain tasks. I'll begin with her explanation of how they made soap. Carrie wrote, Folks used to make their own soap when I was a little girl. First off, all the lye had to be made, and that was done by filling a barrel perhaps one-half or two-thirds full of wood ashes. Then the barrel was filled to the brim with water. This was left for a few days, and then the bung, which was near the bottom of the barrel, was removed and the liquid lye drawn off into a large container. Every bit of fat, free from salt, had been carefully saved ever since the last session of soap-making. This was combined with the lye in a large kettle— and mixed and mixed and mixed until they were thoroughly blended. The mixture was turned into molds of some kind to harden. Then it was cut into convenient sizes and put away for family use. Sometimes Carrie's mother would store these bars of soap in the kitchen cupboard, which is where Carrie's brothers discovered them one afternoon. Jim and Louis, two of the older boys, came home ravenously hungry, tearing through the kitchen cupboards. Remember, this is a family who love to pull pranks on one another, and on this day, it is Jim who pranks Lewis. Carrie continues, There was no one in sight to get them a bite to eat, so they began to prowl about to see what they could find for themselves. In the cupboard, Jim found what he thought were pieces of sweet cake. Well, Jim grabbed a piece and took a bite. It was enough to choke a body, but by some superhuman effort, he kept his face straight, 
while Lewis stood by, his mouth fairly watering. Is it good, Jim? he asked. And that rascal of a Jim lied valiantly as he exclaimed with gusto, Yes, it's awfully good. Poor Lewis didn't take any dainty little mouthful, for he was too hungry. He crammed a great hunk into his mouth. He chewed and spit and swore as he tried to get the vile-tasting mess out of his mouth, while Jim nearly split his sides from laughing. One of Carrie's earliest memories is of washing day. It's a fond memory of time spent with her mother. She wrote, One of the most pleasant memories I have of mother singing is of the summer days when we were alone and went down to the shore of the lake to do the weekly washing. Sunken Lake, as it was called, was only a short distance from our house, and here in the shade of some large maples was mother's wash place. Father had made her a fireplace of some large granite rocks, and here she would build a fire and heat the water gypsy fashion in a large iron kettle. Her wash bench was placed under a large maple, and here she would wash the clothes in the lovely soft water from the lake, using the soap that she herself had made early in the spring, and using the wash tubs that father had made for her by sawing a barrel into halves. I stayed close at hand to bring extra water in a little wooden pail called a half bucket. I also used to go out on a rock and rinse the aprons in the lake and help spread the white clothes on the bushes along the shore to dry, where the bright sun shining on the water would bleach them to a beautiful whiteness. Mother thoroughly enjoyed these wash days and always sang at her work. One great favorite of hers was an old hymn that my grandmother used to sing. She sang several verses of it, singing it to two different tunes, sometimes using one and sometimes the other. On piano is my dear friend Victoria Davies, and I am singing one verse of the hymn entitled Consolation, a song passed down from Eliza's mother, Margaret Hutchinson Long. When I visited Sunken Lake in the spring of 2013, I stood on this very rock where Carrie once knelt to fill her half bucket. Oh, thou wind whose refuge my soul takes delight on whom in affliction I call my comfort by day and my song in the night my hope my salvation and Young girls were taught to knit as soon as they were old enough to manage the needles, and Carrie wrote that sewing was a part of a girl's education. The frigid winters meant everyone needed warm woolen clothing. Hats, scarves, mittens, socks, stockings, and sweaters were knit for every member of the household. In the evenings, her mother would set to work knitting in front of the fire, the clicking of her needles background to her singing. Carrie remembers. She'd take care to get her knitting beyond the heel and shaping the foot while it was still light so that she could knit the plain knitting in the dark. As I remember it, it was in the evenings when the lights were poor, when father and mother sang together while mother knit. The women of the neighborhood prided themselves on their knitting, and many and varied were the patterns worked into the double mittens. Some of the patterns used two colors of yarn, while some of the more intricate designs used three or more. 
Then quite often there was a fringe of yarn around the wrist to keep the wind from going up the coat sleeves. Young ladies often knitted themselves fancy stockings from knitting cotton, using the shell pattern and other all-over patterns. Once father found a bit of a double mitten where it had been frozen in the ice. He brought the scrap home and said to mother, There, Liza, can you knit that? It was a strange pattern to mother, and she looked it over pretty thoroughly. Yes, I think so, she finally answered. She did master it, and many are the mittens which she knit by the same pattern. I believe it was called the fox and geese pattern. We had white blankets for our beds, Carrie wrote. There was heavy jersey cloth, as mother always called it. Always gray, the wool of the white and black sheep mixed. From this she made clothes for father and the boys. We girls had dresses made from finer yarns, colored either blue or a sort of maroon color. Sometimes when the cloth was woven, it was all one solid color, or it might be in plain checks. The stuff wore like iron. The skeins of wool could be dyed any color you wished by using barks, roots, and flowers for dyes. Barks gave different colors, such as maple, white birch, or yellow birch. A dress, when it was outgrown, if there was no younger sister to inherit it, was made into a petticoat. We each had one new winter dress a year. Last year's new dress becoming this year's everyday dress, and the new one was used for school. In the summer, we had a print dress, a new one for school, and the old one for home. When you stop to think that there were no sewing machines and all sewing must be done by hand, you can readily see why we didn't have more. But in the scorching summer sun, everyone would need a straw hat. In early summer, Carrie's mother and older sisters engaged in the process of hat making. Carrie wrote, Our hats for summer were made at home from home-grown oat straw, which mother braided into long golden braids. These braids were sewn together and shaped as they were sewn. After the family supply for the summer were made, they were bleached. This was done by taking a barrel and putting nails around the inside not far from the top. The hats were hung on these nails, and then a pair of hot coals was placed in the bottom of the barrel. Sulfur was sprinkled generously over the hot coals, and then a lid of some kind was put over the top of the barrel. The fumes of the sulfur would bleach the straw from its original deep golden color to a creamy or white hue. One hat was supposed to do us for a season, and as a woman I knew expressed it, we had to wear it to mill and to meeting. I remember one time when Mother had just finished a new hat for Joe. He went down to the lake fooling around, and seeing a lot of minnows, he thought it would be great sport to try to catch some. For want of a better net, he snatched off his new hat and began bailing the fish from the water with the hat. By the time he got through, you'd have scarcely recognized the shapeless article which he held in his hands for a hat. Mother was so provoked, and well she might be. For a punishment, Joe was obliged to wear that hat as it was everywhere he went for the rest of the season. There is a picture of George, probably taken in 1891 or 92, as I believe it was taken in Maine. It seems the photographer caught him by surprise while he was walking. As he's in mid-stride, his head turned to face a camera, but his body and movement straight ahead. He's wearing a straw hat that I can only imagine was made by Eliza before he set out on his journey to Maine to find work. It was not uncommon for the children of Nova Scotia to go barefoot for a good part of the year. Carrie wrote that when she and her brother Joe were little, in winter they had shoes with copper toes on them, 
and how bright they looked. Copper-toed shoes were popular attire for children in the late 1800s. Factory-made shoes were sold in mercantile stores in the larger towns. Perhaps George bought them each a pair on one of his trips to Port Williams. Or just as likely, an itinerant shoemaker, common in their day, had visited their settlement toting tools and leather. Copper toes were added to the tip of the shoe to protect it from daily wear and tear and increase its longevity. In the firelight, the toes gleamed, making them easy to locate in the early morning hours. When I was about 10 years old, Carrie wrote, we were all eagerly looking forward to a frolic at my cousin Frank Spinney's house. He had been clearing a piece of land, and in those days they burned the trees not fit for firewood as well as the underbrush, as there was no sale for anything but cordwood at that time, and wood was plentiful. After the wood was burned, the ashes fertilized the land. So Frank invited the neighbors to a piling, where the wood was piled up for burning. After the piling, the men were invited to supper, and after that, there was dancing and song singing in the evening. Much to my disgust, I had to stay at home with my mother that afternoon, though my father and young brother went to the piling, and my older sister went to help my cousin and her daughters prepare the supper. As mother and I were busy out of doors tidying up the yard, she sang parts of two songs I had never heard before. I like the tunes, and I can remember the event as though it had happened yesterday. I can see just how she looked as she stood fixing up a rose bush, and just how she sounded as she sang a verse of Farewell and Adieu, and a few verses of the lowlands of Holland. Later, at Uncle Frank's house, when supper was over and the dishes washed and put away, the middle of the room was cleared, the chairs placed against the wall. There was always a fiddler present who would now step forward, tuck his fiddle under his chin, give a preliminary tuning up, and then let it be known that we were to take our partners for a dance. Young and old joined in the dancing. Two of the dances, which we used a lot, we called the Dodging Six and the Eight-Hand Reel. When we were finally glad to sit and rest up for a while, a couple of the men would step out onto the floor. They faced each other and step-danced to a lively tune by the fiddler. Father had a step, which he called the Double Back Step, and he'd get in about two steps to his partner's one. He and Cousin Frank often danced together, and often Frank whistled the tune they danced by. Sometimes Uncle Jim would call out to Father, Come on, George, let's dub a tray. And what that meant, I can't tell you. The two of them would step out onto the floor and how their feet would fly. My father was not a graceful dancer, but he knew many intricate steps. They were both over 50 years old then, I think, but how they could handle their feet. At a lull in the dancing, Mother sang The Silk Weaver's Daughter. On this particular evening, for part of the time, I had to sit on a box and sing for the dancers, Cousin Frank telling me which tunes to sing. It's one of the rare times when Carrie speaks of herself as a singer in this community and of her role at a musical gathering.
The jigs and reels you hear are the work of New England fiddler Randy Miller. He's played three, Speed the Plow, Off She Goes, and My Love's But a Lassie. Carrie herself was also a fiddler, though she makes little mention of it in all of her writings. She refers often to her brother Anson as a fine fiddler, and in a recording with Alan Lomax, she says, Mother played this and Mother played that, and that both her grandparents played as well. Carrie appears in a handful of family photographs, playing her fiddle in the early decades of the 1900s. I spoke with a relative of Carrie's on her husband's side of the family. Her name was Ina Grover, and she told me that Carrie used to bring her fiddle and play whenever she came to Ina's house to visit. Once at a party, Ina watched Bertha dancing to her sister's playing. Bertha and Carrie were in their late 60s and early 70s by that time, and it was during these years when song collector Eloise Hubbard-Linscott recorded Carrie's fiddle playing, capturing more than 50 fiddle tunes now housed at the Library of Congress. They, too, will soon be available for listening on the Carrie Grover Project website. Sunken Lake is located in the Black River region. The Baptist Church was built there in 1871, eight years before Carrie was born. It stands there still, with its high rafters and rounded windows. The Spinneys identified themselves as Baptists on a census taken in 1881. As a side note, on the same census, George Spinney claimed farmer as his occupation, and Eliza Spinney, well, she lied about her age, making herself four years younger. The church served a double function as a schoolhouse, where Carrie began attending in the fall of 1885, just after turning six in mid-July. On school days, Carrie, Bertha, and Joe, the three youngest spinny children, traveled east along the shore road to the designated meeting spot, where their cousins met them. Another mile and a half along Moose Lake Road brought them to the school. A stream ran below the schoolhouse, called Little River Brook, and across the road was a churchyard cemetery where her brother Will had been recently laid to rest. Carrie wrote that when she was small, she never had any paper to write on and had never seen a lead pencil until she was at least five years old. Prior to attending school, she practiced her writing on strips of birch bark using the sharpened tip of a burnt stick. She recalled, Each day we had to recite Canadian history, and we had to learn the names of each county as well as the names of the lakes and bays. But making their way through the deep snows to school proved difficult in winter. Heavy snowfall and storms often interrupted their schooling. She wrote, I didn't go during the winter until I was 11. I tried it one winter before that, but in those days we had no snow plows or even snow rollers. We were lucky if we even had the tracks of an ox sled to follow. Many's a time I've wallowed in snow up to my knees. Of course, skirts and stockings would be sopping wet, and there we'd have to sit in wet clothing all during school hours. No wonder I had pneumonia. I developed asthma when I was only 10 years old. But the interruption in formal schooling didn't halt the learning. Storytelling and reading and writing and making music were ongoing beneath the spinny roof. Carrie's sister, Bertha, continued writing poetry, and both of her parents were very literate. Carrie wrote that her father was considered a well-educated man for his time. He couldn't be stumped by a math problem. Carrie's uncle, John Davis Spinney, sent them the Portland Transcript newspaper, and her father read aloud the news to his family. Reading material was scarce, 
and it was all read and reread time and again. There's a story of the day when some cattle appeared in the yard. Not knowing who they belonged to, her brother Lewis put a notice in the paper about them. Shortly afterward, a man came and claimed the cattle. Carrie's parents invited him in for a bite to eat before making his journey home, and in talking with Bertha, he learned how this family loved to read. Not long after this, Bertha received a bundle of Family Herald and Weekly Star newspapers, which were worn threadbare, and Carrie mentioned many of the old songs and poems contained within were memorized. Bertha, three years older than Carrie, was the resident wordsmith, endlessly scribing verse and poems on her slate, then reading her compositions aloud for the others. One day, Bertha had written a poem that she thought was particularly good, and she took it to her father for his opinion. It was so good that he didn't believe it was her doing, and said she must have copied someone else's work. Hurt and indignant, she denied the charge. Finally, to put an end to the argument, he said, Well, I've got to go tend my mares now, but if you can write a poem about me while I'm gone, I may think that you wrote that one. Naturally, this put her on the metal, and she intended to make a good picture of father. Here is the result. This is Bertha's original poem entitled The Trapper read by Bertha's granddaughter, Marie York. My father is a trapper who lived on Sunken Lake. He raised a very large family and trapped foxes for their sake. He also could make baskets, which he worked on in rainy weather. He made axe handles and shovels and sold them all together. And now he has gone to a trap expecting to find a bear. If he should be disappointed, I'll be sorry, I declare. He also had a little farm he worked when it was fine. I tell you, he's a genius, this humpbacked father of mine. But the story doesn't end there. When father came home, Bertha showed him the poem. He was angry at once and declared that she was making fun of him. But mother, who had been a witness to the whole affair from the start, said, George, you told her to write a poem about you, and she'd done it. She wouldn't have if you hadn't told her to. And that was the end of that. And the poem survived. Through Carrie's writing, I've come to know this family pretty well, and I have a great fondness for her father, George. He loved to laugh and sing his songs and smoke his pipe. Quick to anger and just as easily smoothed over, George Spinney was an unfailing optimist who believed in the merits of a strong work ethic. He kept a farm and a sawmill, He crafted axe handles to sell in town, and he hunted and trapped animals both large and small. And he kept his ear to the ground for word of opportunities that might increase his earnings. There are several stories that illustrate George's persistence. One took place six years before Carrie's birth. She refers to it as a story that officially put an end to George's sailing career. Around the year 1873, lured by the prospect of financial gain, George took his final trip to sea. He left his eldest sons, Anson and Lewis, aged 14 and 10, to do their part in carrying out the chores, and he kissed his wife and children goodbye, promising to return shortly. Carrie wrote, There came a time when the price of potatoes was way up, and many are the boatloads which found their way to the port of Boston. There was such a boom in potatoes that high wages were paid to each and every man who had any knowledge of sailing at all. Of course, father had been a sailor, so he shipped aboard a boat sailing between the ports of Halifax and Boston. I don't know how many times they'd made the trip, but there was one trip which father well remembered. 
A bad storm came up after they'd started. The vessel dragged anchor, and they were swept off their course. They feared that they would be dashed to pieces on the rocks, and it was only by the kind intervention of Providence that they were saved from such a fate. One time I showed Father a picture of some rocks called the Three Sisters, and asked him if he ever saw them, and he told me that these were the rocks they had expected to be dashed against. They are referring to the site of three large rocks located near Eatonville, Nova Scotia, where, according to Micmac legend, Glooscap turned his sisters into stone when he learned they had transformed themselves into wolves and were chasing away the moose he was hunting. Carrie continues, I expect this was the place Father meant the vessel was supposed to have been lost, and for a fortnight Mother supposed she was a widow. It was haying time, and Mother mowed the hay by hand herself and cured it. Then, with what help Anson and Lewis could give her, she stored it away in the barn. One day, Father came strolling up the road to the house as unconcerned as you please, having no idea that he was dead, and Mother fainted for the first time in her life. That put an end to Father sailing. This next song is one George learned in Massachusetts. It is my version of a little-known song entitled, So I Let Her Go. I once knew a lad, and I've oft heard him tell, He ne'er knew a lass that he loved half so well. I thought I would take him and I'd be his wife. Then I would be happy for the rest of my life But I found it not so, so I let him go And I don't care a fig for him, so I let him go I went for to meet him one fall summer night And all the way long I was filled with delight And all the way home I was filled with his charm Till I found he was locked in another one's arms Oh, I found it was so, so I let him go And I don't care a fig for him, so I let him go. They will promise to twenty, they will promise to one, they will promise to thirty and be constant to none. They will court you a while and still have in their mind to go with another and leave you behind Oh, I found it was so, so I let him go And I don't care a fig for him, so I let him go There are many more fish that do swim in the sea and I will have one, or by God I'll go free. I will drink to your health, all my troubles to drown. For I am determined to sail the world round. I intend to do so, so I let him go. And I don't care a fig for him, so I let him go. 
Even before Carrie was born, during the mid-1870s, there were economic troubles on a global scale that trickled down to the smallest of villages. When shipbuilding took its downward turn and the need for sawmills languished, George Spinney watched as circumstances shifted, taking a major portion of his income with it. A period of diaspora ensued where men and young teenage boys left Nova Scotia in droves for the lumber camps of the Northeast and the hard-earned wages that kept families afloat back home. George left with Lewis the first time. They went to Gorham, Maine, where George's oldest brother, John Davis Spinney, lived. George labored on a dairy farm and was away for at least several months, while Lewis found work for several years in a logging camp felling timber in the woods. Many songs were shared and learned in these camps, as men gathered in the evenings following a long and dangerous day's work. Carrie wrote that Lewis came home with several new songs, On the Banks of the Daisy, Morrissey in the Black, and Molly Bon. There are many versions of Molly Bon. Here is traditional ballad and folk singer Sarah Gray singing a version entitled Molly Varn. Jimmy Randall went a hunting out in the dark. Shot Molly Varn and he missed not his mark. He ran to where she fell and he found that she was dead. see the Spinney family face some difficult times and make decisions that will change their course forevermore. Carrie will find herself in a new setting, attending school, and becoming a young woman who remained tightly woven to the old songs. In time, she develops a determination to protect and preserve her family's treasure trove of songs and fiddle tunes. In closing, here again is folk singer Lisa Null singing Bonnie Light Horseman one of the many songs Carrie learned from her father. Come, you maids, wives, and widows, I would have 
have you pay attention until these few words I am now going to mention of a female distracted who is now going to wander. She relies upon George for the loss of her lover, broken hearted, a wander for the loss of my lover. true soldier to fight all his foe and to thank it and honor if I could obtain to die in those fields where my true love lies slain broken hearted a wonder for the loss of my lover my body like horseman in the war he lies slain true love doth lie and with my fond wings I would bear on his grave and I'd kiss those sweet lips that lie cold as the 